church, the church of Jesus Christ. Are you happy about that today? You're the church. A unique amalgamation of people with one purpose. Glorify, uh, two purposes. Glorify God, love him forever, and tell, tell about what he's done for you. Tell people who don't know him. Tell people who are confused. They think they know, but really they don't. You and all the Christians of the world are a construction project in process. The name of the project is the kingdom and the temple of God. Who's the chief architect? Jesus, of course. Who's the construction manager? The Holy Spirit of God. He's on site 24-7. Nothing escapes his notice. He's in constant contact with all the workers, who, by the way, are the Father's children. And Jesus' brothers and sisters. It's a family business, you see. It's a family business. And today, we'll be looking at some of the important aspects of how the family should be relating to one another. So we'll start this morning with a show-and-tell example of how the family of God grows toward maturity by connecting with one another. Without a lot of discussion or debate, some of the uh, deacons thought it would be a good, it'd be good to revive the old tradition that John mentioned this morning. Uh, and so we're going to ask John to come up to the platform. John likes to, well, kind of make a splash. So he sits in back today, so it could take a long time for him to get to the front. <laughs> and that way, everyone can clap and cheer as, as he ascends the platform. <laughs> Thank you, John. I hope I embarrassed you. <laughs> uh, let's just cut to the chase here. John, we want to know how you first met Jesus, how you first became a disciple. Okay. Is this on? Okay. Um, well, I was pretty much raised in the church um, ever since I was uh, first born. Um, my parents met at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and got married and had kids. So we were going to church ever since we were little ones, and uh, so as I grew and got older, um, I was able to understand more and more of the Bible, and I always, I believed the Bible and believed what it said ever since I was a little kid, and as I grew older, I got to understand more about what salvation was, that putting your faith completely in Jesus Christ for what he did for us, and nothing of ourselves, it's just uh, putting our faith in, in God, and uh, as my savior and um, 
So that's basically it. It's pretty simple. It's it doesn't need to be a very openly, uh, apparently dramatic yeah. situation, does and it? I, I can't remember any specific date that I did that. It was just kind of a gradual knowledge that I did put my faith in Christ and, and what he did for me. And that's what it takes? Yeah. God love you? Yeah, he does. So, one last question. Why would you want to join and become a member with this group of people? <laughs> um, well, my wife and I have been going here for a little number of years now, maybe five, six, seven years, I'm not sure. And we like the people here. We love the people. Um, we're trying to get more active in the church, participate more. And so there is some uh, requirements on that as far as being a member. So we wanted to become a member here so we could uh, be part of the church. Um, and also just uh, things like the Bible commands us not to forsake the assembling together as believers. Uh, so we've tried to stay active in the church. And, um, and we're a body of believers and all have different gifts and functions. So we want to be part of that to help build the church. Um, and uh, we know we're a family of believers and we do feel like family with some people out there. Now we're getting to know people more. And um, so we, families help each other and uh, pray for each other, and uh, family also is there to um, admonish and correct when needed too, which is important in the body of Christ, and uh, to hold each other accountable. So um, that's just all part of why we want to join this congregation. Wonderful. Another good reason is so that we don't have a house divided. Kathleen's a member already. And just the timing of what happened, uh, you had to wait a little bit longer. Yeah, I had it filled out, the membership application, a long <laughs> time ago, but I just never put it in. So, <laughs> Great. All right. Well, you've heard his testimony. If you are willing to have him as part of this membership, he's already your brother in Christ. But if you're willing, you see, Calvary's not real big on amens, right? We usually like to show our agreement quietly. But this morning, I want you to give a big amen if you are willing to accept John into membership. Amen. Now that should be encouraging. <laughs> Thank you, John. Okay. Look for the, uh, the password and the secret decoder ring in the mail. Okay. Good. I'll put that somewhere where I won't kick it. All right. Before we get to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, I'd like to take a moment to uh, give a, actually a little more than a moment, a few moments, to give another brief explanation as to why you're seeing a variety of Calvary Baptist members in this pulpit. It has to do with the construction process that I just mentioned. It has to do with us as a local part of the body pressing into God so that he can make what he wants out of each of us and out of all of us together. We know that any church that submits to Jesus as its uncontested head absolutely must be about the building up of the body 
for every good work. That in doing these things, we do what God wants us to do. Things like helping people meet God, helping people know God's word, helping people walk by his spirit, and helping people bear fruit. As it pertains to the leadership in and of the local body, over time, each church should have developed a group of people who can preach the gospel, encourage the body, and teach the word competently. If a church has been around like us for 80 years, and there's only one guy who can rightly divide the word of truth and competently instruct the next generation, then something's not right. We should be praising God that Calvary Baptist has a, a number of men who will take up the task. And we pray that others will join that too. Becoming experienced in speaking the word and encouraging, building up the church. That construction project I mentioned it's been going on for 2,000 years, right? It's, it's good for us to remember that we're only the latest expression of what God is doing. But we are still required to hold true to those things he spoke to those first disciples. And that we be faithful. Your leadership board is intentionally and prayerfully resisting the temptation to go hire a charismatic personality who would be the public face of this church. It's not a new idea to the body of Christ. In fact, it's a very foundational idea that was followed for hundreds of years, many generations. It may not feel comfortable, but we're all to be the public faces of our Lord Jesus. Every last one of us. This is, what I'm going to say next is critical. Uh, it's not, not critical of you guys. Um, but we need to acknowledge that in the American church, the American culture has seeped in and, and sometimes maybe even replaced the image of Christ. Sunday morning in some places, has come to resemble a kind of Christian entertainment venue or a kind of pep rally for Jesus. Now, with a social responsibility twist. To the contrary, we think that the Lord will be more pleased if Calvary Baptist Church is more like a carefully tended orchard or vineyard that will produce good fruit for the master. The fork in the road that was mentioned early or during the April quarterly business meeting is, of course, a metaphor for how we perceive the path ahead. We've been slowly approaching the fork, and as we've continued to pray, we've recognized that one path looks comfortably familiar, but the other looks more like the narrow way. 
that narrow way that leads to life. This path requires all of us to keep intently watching Jesus. Eyes on Jesus, we say. This is the path that builds strong and fruitful disciples through active duty participation in the advance of the kingdom of heaven on earth. You've heard us talk about revising the Constitution as part of the path forward. It should be understood that we're we're combing through that document to carefully remove the language of American business and restate our purposes in the language of the kingdom of God. We're not a business, are we? We're the living, breathing, worshiping temple of God. And we think that our documents and how we describe these things should reflect that. Now, regarding my own participation in this pulpit ministry, I beg your patience and your grace each time I speak. The fact that I write out what I'm hoping to say is a consequence of my own mental slippage. I used to be able to speak from a list of key words and phrases, counting on one thought taking me reliably to the next. Anybody know how hard it is to work with dull tools? I feel like that sometimes. I admit it, I've resorted to painstakingly writing everything down ahead of time and reading, mostly, everything that I've thought and prayed through for a couple of weeks. So for as long as you'll put up with my limited skills, I'll keep trying to deliver some coherent thoughts that represent the Lord well. One other thing. I wish I could run up here on the stage like Matt Lawson. (laughs) Be awesome. And I wish I had Matt's commanding voice so it would at least be nice to listen to. But this is the not-so-commanding voice that our master gave me. So I'm going to use what I have. Some of you have been very... Gracious, actually many of you, saying, boy, you know, you sound just like your father. Well, I'll take that. We'll go with that. (laughs) Okay. I guess I'm not going to need this. Okay, let's turn our thoughts back to Ephesians. Last week, uh, Matt ended uh, at verse 10 of chapter 2. We'll begin with verse 11. 
But first, I want to give you a little quiz. What was the last thing Jesus said to the church in Ephesus? The answer is not in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23. The answer is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I know about your deeds, your hard work, good service. I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You don't love me today the way you loved me when you first believed. That's my paraphrase. This letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, I'm sure, had good effect. But long before Ginny and I had a chance to visit the ruins of Ephesus, long before that, the Ephesian church was gone. And Jesus had specifically told them, don't lose your first love. Now, Ephesus is part of, as they want us to say, Turkia. If you say Turkey now, you're being insensitive. Turkia. Ephesus, if you drive toward the city on the county road that gets you there, you come up on this sign and it just says E-P-H-U-S, Ephesus. Ephesus is just a curiosity. It's where people go to take a look at what used to be. What's reality there now are the Muslims who like to keep the site open because it brings in tourist money. Except for the Catholic shrine of the alleged House of Mary, where is the passionate church of Jesus? Turkey is 99% Muslim. And there are very few Christians who have a difficult life. Ephesus is a thing of the past. Would you pray with me quickly? Father, we want to be instructed by your word. And we thank you for the chance to be together this morning. Thank you that you are with us. I ask that you work in each heart, Lord, uh, to receive the message that you want. We ask this in Jesus' name, in your name, Lord. Amen. Last week, uh, Matt was talking about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And he was talking about God being rich in mercy and in great love. And we looked at how by grace we've been saved. So let's pick that up now. In verse 11, it says, Remember from whence you came, what you used to be, how you once behaved. Not just the Ephesians, but the Battle Creekians. 
Do you remember sometimes what it was like not knowing the Lord? Do you let that encourage you that he's never, he, he's never left you? He's never forsaken you? Those memories are truly in the past. In Ephesians, Paul was speaking particularly of the Gentiles and the Jews and those who had become believers and were now fellowshipping in the same body, the same local body. And there was some tension there, like in other places where the church grew. The Jewish Christians kind of wanted the Gentile believers to act a little more Jewish. It's best that way. And there was tension. And Paul, Paul wrote to try to clarify their thinking. The names attached to the two opposing forces, we see Gentiles and Jews, and then he also uses the language of uncircumcision and circumcision. We've talked about that before. Um, we know that that was the physical marker that the Jews used to identify who's who. The unbeliever's status was separated, alienated, strangers. Actually, God's idea to be a separate people out of the nations. So the Jews were separate. They were connected with God, but the Gentiles were wholly other. They were not invited in. The unbeliever's condition, no hope without God in the world because we were not people of the promise. Praise God, we have a new promise based on the redeeming blood of Jesus and his resurrection proof of authority over death. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 13. But now our status and condition have changed because we are in Christ. Yes, we're a friend of Christ. Yes, we're a servant of Christ. But maybe the most significant characteristic is that we are in Christ. Doesn't that sound like a safe place? It is. Never leave us or forsake us. We were far off and we've been brought close, not doing not our doing, but Christ's. We are one people in Christ. That alone is shocking. When you think of the number of different people groups that God has rescued believers from, we should be pretty thankful because some groups have only a few. How different are the Arabs from the Americans? The Indians, the Chinese, the South Africans, the Germans, the Norwegians, the Colombians. 
English, Italians, Uzbeks, Costa Ricans. Are you getting the point? They are all so different from one another. But Jesus is doing something. He's making one new man. No longer intentionally separate, but intentionally bound together with the blood of Jesus. In 2.15, there was a dividing wall of hostility, a barrier actually put there by God to help his chosen people follow him and not the other gods of the world. Let's read together now. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to try to speak quickly. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. By now, or but now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, you who were far off, and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being held together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This wall of hostility. The barrier was actually put there by God for a purpose, and then God took it away. There's a time for some things and a time for others. And when Jesus came and brought the gospel of grace, those dividing walls, those regulations of worship weren't needed anymore. And that wall could be torn down. From Abraham to Jesus, there was the Jew and then everyone else. The law of commandments and ordinances separated us Gentiles from God and his people. These ordinances separated the Jews from God too. John mentioned the veil. 
and how wonderful it was that at the death of Jesus, that veil was torn apart. They had separated the Jews from God too, but they'd been given access to God through the temple-based worship. They'd been given a path to forgive it, forget forgiveness, albeit temporary and in need of constant renewal by an animal sacrifice. Isn't it nice that our altar remains empty? We don't need to set a sacrifice there. We can put nice flowers there. We get a bit more understanding from Galatians chapter 3, especially verses uh, 23 through 27. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Now, before before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, There's neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Seems kind of clear, doesn't it? It is clear. Jesus fulfilled the law and then set it aside and brought peace and reconciliation both with God the Father and it provided the reconciliation between Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles. The key to understanding how the children of the law and the feral children of the earth can be one new man, is to remember that Jesus won the right to be over all things, including law, the law, and grace. The one new man, the church, can only exist in Christ. And by the way, if you're under the impression that God is finished with the Jews and their promises have been transferred to the church, you have been misled. Not just misinformed, misled. The one new man that Jesus made and calls his body will go on into eternity. This is the church. What about the unbelieving Jews? Hmm. Is God finished with them? Were they discarded back in the first century, never to be redeemed? No. Jesus made it abundantly clear to the Apostle John when he gave him the words of revelation that a remnant of the sons of Abraham would, in the midst of the tribulation, 
recognize Jesus as their Messiah, be saved, and become part of the eternal family of God. God is not done with the Jewish family. They will be joined with the believing Gentiles into that one new man. Paul instructs the Ephesians and us that the cross not only killed Jesus, but because of the redeeming blood of Jesus, the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles was killed too. The earthly ministry of Jesus was first and foremost to the Jews, but also with saving grace to the Gentiles. And part of its purpose was to kill the hostility between the two. This created the possibility of healing the human family rift. The Jews on one side, everybody else on the other, and everybody else didn't get along with each other either. I think we can say it became provisionally true. It was possible, and in the church, to to a degree, it became reality. Praise God. But for most of A.D. history, it didn't change because to this day, most Jews and most Gentiles remain unbelievers. The unbelievers in both camps have continued to mistrust and malign and mistreat each other. Mostly Gentiles against the Jews. Our world's politicians are never going to get this sorted. It's never going to be reconciled. Oh yeah, there's one coming who will make peace with the Jewish nation, but it is a ruse. And that one will again try to exterminate the Jews. So how are we doing, brothers and sisters? Have you been willing to go to the point of sacrificial love for your brother in Christ? Has the church really broken down the wall of hostility? It should be to our great shame and embarrassment that some of the church still hasn't. Yep, down through the centuries, hostility has lingered just under the surface, erupting occasionally into plain sight. A prime example would be the obviously unholy crusades. Oh, that was long ago. We got nothing to do with that. Some of those attitudes are still here. This crusade savaged the Jewish communities and the Muslims alike. So too, the Spanish Inquisition. Not a fun time for the Jews. Perpetrated by the church, or at least those calling themselves the church. Or the Russian Orthodox Church, completely different vein of a Christian Protestant religion, right? Mm, Not Protestant, they're Orthodox. But in Russia, they were instrumental in fomenting, fomenting hatred of the Jews. And occasionally they'd even declare a holiday. They called them pogroms. You get to go attack any village you want that's Jewish. Take whatever you want, kill whoever you want. It's a pogrom. 
perpetrated by the church. Amazing. Or how about the unabashed anti-Semitism, this may hurt, the unabashed anti-Semitism of Martin Luther's writings in the 1500s. That's been kept secret from a lot of people. How can somebody who is used so greatly by God to bring the church back into real fellowship have that big of a blind spot that he could write about how terrible the Jews are? Even after the horror of the Holocaust, Hatred of the Jews is still passed down from generation to generation wherever Jewish people have settled. Some American Christians from mainline denominations are eagerly promoting the Palestinian cause by denouncing Israel and boycotting your products. And yet our scripture says to bless the Jews. Bless them. Don't curse them. All of this history has been played out by confessing Christians, even though Jesus, our Jewish Savior, said that the world would know that we follow him by what? By the way we love each other. I was so glad when we had a Seder dinner here. Is it last month? Just last month. And the man who came and helped us understand that process was our brother in Christ. It's awesome. We need to look for opportunities to bless our Jewish brothers and sisters. Do we even bless our brothers and sisters here in town? Have you been willing to even shake the hand of a brother right here in Brattle Creek, one whom you disagree with on some point? Yeah, this is where it gets real. We are to break down the dividing walls. Yes, we don't want to be in fellowship with wolves who are pretending to be believers. We need to show them that our faith is real and if they'd stop pretending, they could know our Lord and Savior and they could enjoy real fellowship. I don't know who the wolves are. It's not for me to judge. But I do know that the Lord expects me to love my brothers and sisters in Christ and if I'm going to make a mistake, I'm going to make it on the side of loving someone who deserves to be loved because they're my brother or sister. Hmm. Verse 18. To the first century Ephesians, the great new reality that Paul was explaining was that we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. This is almost an aside to the main idea of all believers being one man in the Spirit. 
but obviously it's important or it wouldn't be in scriptures. We both have access. Access, access. How do we get access? Through prayer. We're here to have a conscious understanding that since the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we pray by the Holy Spirit through Jesus to the Father. Or to say it another way around, as adopted sons and daughters, we pray to our Heavenly Father through the blood of Jesus, our mediator and our advocate, by the power of the Holy Spirit who helps us to pray even when we don't know what to say. We can groan before the Lord and he knows what it means. The Holy Spirit helps us in that. Even if we don't say it right, that's what's happening. Always go to prayer being thankful for the access made possible by Jesus. We are one church. This critically important feature of the kingdom of God was a major theme in the ministry of the Lord gave to Paul. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And as such, he repeated his teachings to the Galatians and the Romans and here in Ephesians. He kept trying to remind them, we're one, we're one, we're together, act like it. Bless God by letting him see how we're acting like that. In verse 19, there it is again, no longer strangers and aliens. We were those things, but not anymore. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, no one was coming to us Gentiles saying, would you like to know the real creator God? You're worshiping all these crazy idols you could, was that happening? Were they coming to us? No. There was a separating wall. We were strangers, aliens, without hope in the world. Honestly, it's hard for me to think about that, to realize how many people lived and died before Jesus And before people started believing in him and were willing to go and tell everyone else. That's a hard truth. We don't have a comfortable answer for that. What's also true is that we can't do anything about the past. We can learn from it. And we can be actively engaged in the advance of the kingdom of God today and I know so many of you are every person in every kingdom no exceptions was separated from God whose holiness made him absolutely unapproachable most people still don't know and still would not have cared but I imagine that all of heaven and every created being in heaven was shocked and stunned to witness the revolution of the kingdom of heaven. Satan had just lost his grip on humanity. 
every iteration of humanity, could now be fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verses 20 through 22, God had begun something new. He was building a holy temple which he himself, in which he himself will dwell. Man, that's hard to get my mind around. A holy temple of living stones fit together precisely according to the plan. Jesus is identified as the chief cornerstone. It's good to remember that once a cornerstone is laid, every other part of the building, every stone, every brick, the doors, the windows, even the roof are all positioned based on the position of the cornerstone. In him, you also are being built together. This temple is being built yet today, and you have a place in it. No matter what you think of that old rock music anthem, which said, you're just another brick in the wall. It's not true. Whatever purpose you perform, you are precisely fitted into the temple of God based solely on your relationship with Jesus. This is an eternal temple, and your ultimate purpose is to what? Love God, glorify Him. Forever and ever and ever. And all the activities, all the things we do, all the wonderful gatherings we have here at Calvary, they're based on that. Us loving God and glorifying him. We're in practice mode. We're going to keep glorifying him when we get there. We'll do this forever and ever. Good to practice now. Get good at it now. Have you ever wondered, who am I? Who am I really? The world tells us a whole bunch of things. Do you know Jesus? Are you in Christ? If so, then without any exaggeration, you can rightly say, I'm part of the dwelling place of God Most High. Sounds incredible, as in, is not credible. I am the dwelling place of God. The only reason it's credible is because it is in this tested and proven Word of God. Make sure you're in the word of God this week and the week thereafter. Yes, we're the dwelling place of God. Let's take hold of this truth this week and I'm going to end with this. I am the dwelling place of God. So how should I interact with the people around me? Especially my spouse, my mom and dad, my children, the other people around me.
These are not profound questions. They're easy ones. They're not hard to understand. Do what you're supposed to do. You've been in church long enough to know what that is. Every time, just do what you know you're supposed to do. It's amazing how well things work out. I'm the dwelling place of God, so what should I allow into my heart? We have these portals that stuff funnels through and gets into our heart. I'm the dwelling place of God. How much garbage are you willing to let sit in one of the back rooms? Let's watch, watch what we let in. I'm the dwelling place of God, so how should I spend my time? Honestly, we don't get that much of it. We were reminded yesterday as we thank God for the life of Anita Talmadge. 60 years. No more time to work on being a disciple, a fruitful one. How are you spending your time? Is there time that you could redeem? Things that Some things just don't need to happen or just don't need to get done. (laughs) Spend your time wisely. Pursue the kingdom. We, the church, are the dwelling place of God, so how should we treat each other in the church? 